the meeting of risk aversion with a market that was priced for essentially zero risk. We will see some bankruptcies. Disruptions can have a much larger effect. You always have a trapdoor situation. You should always allow for that. Using public funds to bail out private losses, it, it makes me completely crazy, right? Binge watched Tiger King, he's crazy. Even though the world finds itself in various states of lockdown, the wheels of the global economic machine continue to turn, albeit at an ever slowing rate. In this series of conversations, I'm joined by some of the best and brightest minds it's been my pleasure to befriend over the last 35 years to try and gain some insight as to what we can expect the coming months to bring. Will equity and bond markets bounce back? Does a blizzard of multi-trillion dollar stimulus packages mean that central banks have finally reached the end of the road? And if so, what happens next? Is the world facing an even greater depression? Or is a return to the inflationary spiral our likely future? From markets to mortgages, from policy to politics and everything in between, please join me for the 2020 Humanar series. My fifth conversation features one of the smartest researchers, analysts and money managers anywhere on Wall Street. John Hussman has been sharing his work with thousands of readers for well over a decade, and anyone who's read it knows how detailed, thought-provoking, and insightful it is. John rarely does interviews, but he very kindly agreed to join me to talk about the state of the world around us, the potential ramifications of central bank policy, and what the next few months are likely to bring for investors. He even busted out his Christopher Walken impression, which, I've got to say, is worth the price of admission alone. So please welcome my friend, Dr. John Hussman. Listen, John, thank you so much for doing this. Uh, I know you don't do many of them. The last time you and I actually met in person, we were sat uh, in an airport in the in the check-in desk when you very kindly drove down so you and I could sit and have a, a coffee and a chat. Uh, God, it seems like a lifetime ago, but pre-virus, uh, when you could meet in airports with people. Yeah. Um, but look, this 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 we've we're in a world now that um, is a mystery to most of us. We we're we're in the in the midst of this crisis, we've we've all seen the pre-crisis world. We're looking forward to the post-crisis world. We have no idea what it's going to look like. So I thought this this week would be a perfect chance to to chat with you about that because, for whatever reason, a lot of the things that you've been talking about for such a long time now are most likely the pressure on them to actually occur now once the 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 the, the ability of policymakers to kind of subvert natural forces is gone. So I guess the best way to start is just to, to get your general sense of where we are in the markets, where we are in the world, and, and how you look at the current market through your lens. Sure. So um, I think probably the best place to start was uh, not quite pre-crisis, because, you know, uh, I've been, you know, posting about, you know, some of the things relative to SARS-CoV-2 uh, since early February. But in terms of the financial markets, we actually uh, peaked basically uh, in February. And I'll, I'll post, uh, I'll, I'll put a couple of things up on screen for, for, for people to see. So, so back in 
February, one of the things that, that I was uh, talking about a lot was that the financial markets were priced literally for zero return and uh, on the presumption of zero risk. So this is a chart that goes back to 1927 uh, and basically, basically looks at uh, the estimated 12-year annual return on a conventional 60% stocks, 30% treasury bonds, 10% T-bill mix. Uh, and uh, the red line is the actual return of that portfolio over the following 12 years. Uh, and this is based on uh, a lot of my own valuation work. Uh, but, you know, this is 1929. Uh, we got to about 0% expected returns. Uh, right here is 2000. At that peak, uh, we got uh, right about 2% expected 12-year returns. Bond yields were actually up by 6%, but expected returns on stocks were, were negative. Uh, and every now and then, you know, we'll, you'll get these deviations here. This was in 1988. Why? Because 12 years later, you had a bubble peak in stocks. So we had the same thing here 12 years ago, where, ex where actual returns were running higher than one would have expected. Why? Because, well, we were at the peak of a bubble. And so when you look at February's returns, February's prospective returns, which are inverse to valuations, uh, we were at what we estimated as to be negative, likely, uh, you know, 12-year total returns. And from, you know, the standpoint of, for example, uh, the metrics that we find best correlated with subsequent market returns, we were either pushing or beyond uh, levels that we saw in 1929 and 2000. So one of the ways that you can think about what's been happening in the financial markets is that we had a market in February that was essentially priced for near zero or in, in stocks, negative likely returns, long-term, you know, 10, 12-year returns uh, for, for a, a fairly long time. And what we've had since then is just the meeting of risk aversion with a market that was priced for essentially zero risk. Uh, and what's a little problematic with the response that people have had to this is that it's not clear that they realize how little progress we've made. So this is where we were in February, and you're going to see a new line come up. And that line is as of yesterday. So these are the expected returns that we estimated on stocks, bonds, corporate bonds, utilities, the S&P 500 at various points in time. A secular low or a really good bear market low, this is 1982, that's as, as good as you get. Stocks were priced for about 20% long-term returns, uh, or at least 10-year returns at that point. Uh, this here is the March 2009 low. Uh, stocks were priced for about 11% you know, compound annual returns at that low above average. Uh, 19, uh, I'm sorry, 2002's low was probably the most overvalued bear market bottom that we've seen in history, but it was still priced at a reasonably good long-term rate of return. We're here. We're at about 2%, 1% uh, in terms of you know, where, where prospective returns are. So uh, we hear Wall Street sort of already looking over the valley to the, kind of the next bull market, oh, you know, V bottoms and this sort of thing. 
and 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 my question is looking over the valley to what we're still at valuations that imply very poor longer term returns uh and normally when we've seen durable bear market bottoms uh so this is this is uh basically the 2002 low this is the 2009 low uh and that's the same on another metric we use uh here's the 1982 low here's you know early you know early 1940s we're right around here right now we're nowhere near the kinds of valuations that typically exist at a recession low where you would get excited about valuations and return prospects. Yeah, you know, so, so funny, the, the first question that's come up has, is exactly the question I was going to ask you. So Peter Pierce, you read my mind. How, how do you factor in monetary policy, unlimited liquidity? How do you, how do you account for that in, in these models? Great. So, and that's a that's a fantastic question because valuations uh, are helpful, but they do uh, inform an investor only over uh, the long term, over over uh, you know complete. They give you a sense of what full cycle risk is. You know, in other words, what's the downside that you might experience over the course, the completion of a. Uh, market cycle where you have a bear market. And they're also very informative about 10, 12 year returns. The problem with valuations is they do not do a very good job over shorter segments of the market cycle. And what matters over shorter segments of the market cycle is investor psychology. And one of the ways that we can infer investor psychology, uh, whether it's speculative or risk averse, is uh, from the uniformity of market internals. And we're talking about industries, sectors, uh, credit spreads, all, all kinds of things. Because when investors are inclined to speculate, they tend to be indiscriminate about it. They drive everything up. They drive junk bonds up. And we've seen that uh, you know, to excess in this cycle. We've seen a lot of covenant light debt coming on, uh, similar to what we saw in low-grade mortgage debt coming on in, you know, in 2005 to 2007. So we've seen uh, periods where valuations don't matter over the shorter run because people have a speculative bid in their teeth. Uh, this, this chart here uh, that I'm showing is, so the, the blue is obviously the S&P 500, that, the total return of that. The red is basically the S&P 500's total returns during periods in which uh, we would measure uh, uniform market action. And we've talked about this uh, all the way back, you know, since 1998. Uh, this, this model was basically something that I introduced around that time. So, so uh, my error, by the way, in this recent cycle lie, lie, lay elsewhere. It lay in uh, my, my uh, respect for historical measures that speculation had gone too far. And in the presence of QE, there was no such thing as too far. Yeah. So to, but to answer your question, the interesting thing is that even though monetary policy can amplify speculation, and we certainly saw it in this cycle where, where we really did violate uh, valuations, uh, the historical norms of valuations to the same degree that we saw in 1929 and leading up to 2000, uh, here's another chart that I think is really important for people to understand, which is uh, what, what I've done here is I've partitioned 
market conditions you know, uh, across history based on whether the Fed was easing or tightening at the time. And this includes mm -hmm. uh, what, what they were doing with the federal funds rate, what they were doing with uh, monetary base in terms of quantitative easing and so forth. Um, and also asking the question, were internals positive or negative, favorable or unfavorable at that time, uniform or divergent at that time? And one of the things you can see is that, yeah, when investors are inclined to speculate and the Fed is easing, you should not fight that. And you know, yeah. one, of the, one of the big lessons of this cycle is you should not even fight that even when even when overextended conditions, overvalued, overbought, overbullish conditions are extreme. Doing that was uh, you know, really, um, uh, I would say, uh, detrimental uh, for, for us in, in the recent bull market. So one of the lessons to learn, and I think it's a good lesson to learn, is that when internals are positive, especially when the Fed is easing, you don't fight that. On the other hand, one of the things you'll also notice is when the Fed has been easing this orange line, but market internals have been unfavorable, you've still had really wicked declines uh, very often in history. And, and, and so, you know, during the bulk of the 2000-2002 bear market, the Federal Reserve was just relentlessly cutting rates. During the bulk of the 2007-2009 collapse, the Fed was relentlessly cutting rates. And so the question is, why didn't that work? And the answer is that what Fed easing does is it creates more essentially zero interest or low interest liquidity, but it's safe liquidity. When investors are inclined to speculation, they don't care about safe liquidity, especially low interest rates. That's, that's a, uh, an inferior asset to them. And so they try and get rid of it. Uh, they can't get rid of it because once the Fed creates monetary base, it exists until the Fed withdraws that monetary base by reversing its open market operations. But somebody, everyone who gets this hot potato, this low interest hot potato, tries to get rid of it. And so it foments a lot of this kind of speculation that you see here. The problem is that when investors are risk averse, which we also saw during the global financial crisis and you know, during the tech collapse and so forth, in that environment, safe liquidity isn't an, isn't an inferior asset, it's a desirable one. That's what you want. So creating more of the stuff doesn't provoke you to try and get rid of it by speculating in stocks. The other way to think about that is that when investors are inclined to speculate, they rule out losses, capital losses from their equation. So the only thing that matters is, does this thing have a yield higher than zero? And that's what we've seen in recent years. On the other hand, when people get risk averse, they start thinking about that capital loss piece and they start saying, well, why would I get out of a zero interest asset when I could get into the market and lose 10% next week? And so the, the, the thing that's important is, is not to say, look, valuations are high, so we shouldn't participate and we can't participate. Rather, it's to say, look, when we have rich valuations, and we have divergent internals. And especially when we have already relieved a lot of the oversold compression that we saw a few weeks ago, this isn't a time to be chasing the market. If you're a buy and hold investor, I'm not trying to discourage you from that. I would be, be aware of 
of whether you would be able to continue that plan if we got another decline, if, if the market was to fall in half. Uh, and I would not rule out the S&P 500 being cut in half. That's where we would basically reach historical valuation norms on the most reliable measures. But it is to say, look, if you are, if you are thinking about this 20% off the highest levels in history in terms of valuations as a you know, generational buying opportunity, you may want to rethink that uh, impulse. Well, you, you know, you talk about the psychological component, and it and it's so important to to get that right. And it's also the hardest thing to get right. And it's also the thing that can change without any advance warning whatsoever. How, how do you account for that? Because it is such a, an important component of these models. Yeah. So 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 again, um, I, I think the the challenge here is that you need an observable, right? You know, psychology yeah, yeah. is a very vague thing. So one of the things that we try and do is we try and extract a signal out of observable market action. Uh, and, and I'm a noise reduction guy. A, a lot of my papers in uh, statistical genetics is, uh, you know, about noise reduction. You know, the things that I write about, uh, you know, molecular pathways is uh, about noise reduction. This is a noise reduction strategy, too. Basically, what you're doing is you're looking at individual stocks, industries, sectors, um, you know, security types uh, that includes, uh, you know, low-grade debt, higher grade debt, credit spreads, uh, you're looking at breadth, um, you know, uh, participation, you know, how many individual stocks are participating in a move, you're looking at leadership in terms of highs and lows. So we use a lot of that stuff uh, in these measures of market internals. But the basic thing for us is, are we seeing uniformity or are we seeing divergence? Because divergence is, is kind of like you know, if you see if you see a herd of gazelle and they're just running, 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 there may be nothing in their way. But if they see something in front of them that they're worried about, you'll see them start to scamper and you'll see sort of a lack of uniformity. And that lack of uniformity tells you there's some risk aversion here that I can infer from the divergence in their behavior. And so, you know, so our internal stuff is proprietary, but mainly because we don't want every single person acting on exactly the same signal. Otherwise, I try and be really open about it, like I am with yeah. my valuation work and everything else. Uh, and basically, what we're trying to capture here is do we see a uniformity that informs us that, hey, people really have a speculative bid in their teeth and it's and it is indiscriminate? Or do we see divergence and sort of ragged market action? Right now, we still see ragged market action. If we were to shift to more uniformity at these valuations, it doesn't mean we would have to stay bearish, but we would want to keep a safety net because valuations are extreme and because there is a whole lot more economic risk that I don't think is, is um, you know, subsumed in, a, in this V-shaped recovery yeah. idea. Right. But uh, but it is something that we could respond to more constructively than we could have two months ago. My ideal and what we've typically seen after every bear market is that you get a really substantial decline in valuations. 
Uh, and again, if you look back at 2007, 2009, the Fed eased the whole way down uh, and it didn't do much because uh, other than short-term pops because people were risk averse. But once you get reasonable valuations plus a shift to more uniformity, now you're in a situation where you can take off your hedges, you can get constructive, you can even get aggressive. But I think that's down the line. But our approach is always read, the read that out of the data rather than trying to form scenarios. Yeah. So, so, so when you look at the market internals today, mm -hmm. how do they look? Are, you, are we close or are we nowhere near anywhere where you can get comfortable with it? We're not near there yet. Uh, the, the, what, what we've seen in the past few weeks, and, and, and I uh, posted some charts on this uh, near, you know, near these spike lows, uh, and, and you'll see these if you, if you go to my Twitter feed, Hussman JP, uh, is you'll, you'll occasionally see these charts uh, where I talk about compression. Uh, and basically what that is, is when you've seen a very sharp market loss over a short period of time, and you also see some of these measures like uh, the, the, the Wilder you know, RSI, Relative Strength Index, really compressed. Uh, you see those together, and very often you'll get these explosive, uh, kind of fast, furious rallies that I call clearing rallies to kind of relieve that short-term compression. And that's really what we've seen over the last few weeks. It's not so much that internals have shifted, but we've really relieved a lot of suppression uh, of that compression. And the thing that I'm a little worried about is that people look at this and they're, they, they get this idea in their head that, oh, well, it's over now. Uh, and I should be chasing stocks and I didn't do it at the bottom, so let me double in now. Um, I, I still think for a long-term investor, you wanna think <sighs> prospective long-term returns still are probably in the area of one or 2% annually. Um, doesn't mean that if speculation comes in, we couldn't get you know, a fresh rally up to new highs and that sort of thing. I really doubt it in this environment, but we would respond to that when it happens. I wouldn't be saying, oh, I missed the low and I've got to pile in now. I think, that's, I, I think that would be chasing. I would want to see more evidence from that uniformity. And, and I post on this stuff all the time, so, yeah. you know. Well, listen, let me ask you, you and I have spoken in person about, you know, mistakes that have been made and figuring out what they were and working out how to fix them. Mm -hmm. um, how do you, given the stuff you've done, the stuff you've written about, and, you know, I know how much you go back and analyze this stuff and try and work out, okay, why didn't that play out the way we thought it would? Um, you've now got not only uh, QE, but you have a couple of trillion dollars being thrown out of the yeah. window every couple of days. You've got MMT on the table. You've got essentially the game has now changed again for you. And so given what you've learned from the last, uh, the last cycle and the mistakes that you found there, how do you now adjust this, realizing how big a mistake they were and now it's been amped up? How do you go about factoring in this new, I mean, craziness that we're about to see? Yeah, so so actually, that's that's actually something, and I and I preload this slide to some of the things that I do because because uh, you know if you look at um, the stumble that I had in this cycle, I I'm not one of these guys who shoves 
that under the rug. What I try and do is say, I want you to learn from this so that, so that one, you know where the error was, but also so that you don't ignore the things that are still effective and the things that are still important. And this is something that I talk about a lot. You know, the, the error was in assuming there was a limit to speculation. So when, when the Fed has been pumping out all this zero interest money and, and doing these extraordinary things and investors have the speculative bid in their teeth, one of the things to learn is that you should not fight that. That's, uh, that, that's the big error is, is saying, you know, things have gone too far. It's gone, it's gone way up. Because basically once interest rates hit zero, so did Wall Street's collective IQ. There was no limit to how much speculation was going to happen. Um, the thing that is important and the lesson to be learned, and this is why I sort of mouthed all the time when you said how, I, I don't know whether you go back and look at your errors, because one of the things that I try and do is, is in fact, learn from them. One of the things that, that we've learned is that the requirement's straightforward. Regardless of how extreme valuations or other conditions might become, we have to defer adopting or amplifying a bearish outlook unless our measures of internals have also explicitly deteriorated, right? So basically what we have to do is say, look, if people get that speculative bit in their teeth, we have to allow for the possibility that valuations will be suspended for a while. You know, valuations don't always work because if they did, you could never get to extreme valuations. Right? The advance would always be stopped at a lower point. So the fact that we have seen extreme valuations before in history means overvaluation isn't enough. Now, historically, overvaluation and overextended conditions have been in this cycle. It wasn't. So that's the piece to not hang your hat on. Right? That's what to learn from me. Right? But you should not learn or imagine that the Federal Reserve or, or any of this, if people are inclined toward risk aversion, will help much because there's, there, there is such a psychological component in stock prices that when, when you have the combination of overvaluation and ragged market internals, you always have a trapdoor situation. You should always allow for that. Even if you're inclined to be constructive, you should kind of have a safety net. It's, it's when you get these you know, just open spigots and people have this, the, the bit in their teeth. Uh, and ideally when valuations aren't so extreme, that's when you can sort of really embrace uh, market risk. I, I don't think people know, for example, that I was leveraged through most of, you know, much of the early uh, 1990s advanced after the 19, you know, after the 1990 low, you could do that because valuations were strong. Uh, you know, they were, they were, relatively low, market internals were great, uh, you had a lot of uniformity, and the economy was coming back. So, you know, when you see those kinds of things, yeah, you can take more risk. We have just started uh, a economic downturn. Uh, and I, just to give you a sense of where we're at, this is a, a chart of basically the quarterly decline of, of output at an annualized rate uh, from the prior peak. Um, and then the cumulative decline uh, from the prior peak until a new GDP peak is reached. So the worst decline in GDP since uh, the depression 
was in the uh, 2007-2009 period, uh, and it was, it was just above uh, 5% cumulative GDP lost. It's difficult for me to imagine this one will be less. And even with all of the, uh, all of the uh, rescue packages and that sort of thing, um, it's, it's going to be difficult to envision a V bottom from this because a, re a recession, and this is something I wrote about in 2000 and again in 2007, a recession is always not just a decline in sort of aggregate output and sort of a representative consumer, you know, just deciding to consume less, which is kind of a Keynesian model. Recessions are really a mismatch between what was produced and what is now demanded by the economy. And when those mismatches occur, and my suspicion is that we have massive mismatches right now, I mean, just think of travel and leisure, right? But we have massive mismatches that have, that have now developed that are going to need some adjustment. And those adjustments take time. So the people who have been laid off aren't immediately gonna go back to their previous line of work. Some of them will, some of them won't. There will be new industries that open up. There will be some that fail. And that's part of this adaptation, or as Schumpeter called it, creative destruction that's required in order for us to you know, move forward and have a situation where the economy is actually producing what people want. But this is going to be disruptive. And I, and I doubt that we're going to have this beautiful V bottom that that Wall Street is assuming, where they've where they've only cut uh, forward operating earnings for 2020 by 11 percent, 11 percent. I it's it's hard for me to even say that because it's I I, I think it's it, it would be a surprise. Let's put it that way. <laughs> Well, that's a, that's a generous way to put it. Well, listen, I, I just want to ask you about the economy a little bit, and I'm going to change how I normally do this, because I always try and weave as many questions into our conversations as I can, but there's so many fantastic questions coming in today, so I'm going to, I'm going to actually go directly to some of those shortly. But just your view on the economy itself. Obviously, we haven't seen this roll through. We've seen those extraordinary initial claims numbers come through. Um, you know, they're going to turn into continuing claims. How bad do you think the hit to the economy is going to be? And and how wildly off base is the market pricing that right now? Because it seems to me as though it really isn't pricing the potential here effectively at all at the moment. So so here's a, a slightly different way to think about it. Uh, and it's, it's something that, that people hear me say all the time about, about asset pricing. A stock is not a claim on next year's earnings. It's not a claim on five years earnings. It's a claim on a very, very long decades stream of cash flows that will be delivered to investors over time. What's interesting is that if you think about, you know, investments from a from a discounted cash flow standpoint, you know, or what are the cash flows that I'm buying, and what's given the price, what's the embedded rate of return that I'm actually agreeing to, right? Um, you know, that will vary over time. But what's also interesting is even if you knock out the first year or two or even three years of cash flows entirely, that's not what causes a massive, what should cause a massive hit 
to uh, to stocks because basically, you know, it, the 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 discounted cash flows don't really change by all that much. They may change by several percent, but it's not the kicking out of even a, a few years of cash flows that does it. The problem is that if you've got a market that's priced for zero return and extremely overvalued and assuming no risk, disruptions can have a much larger effect because what they do is they, is they bring investors to say, you know what, I am not comfortable taking risk for next to zero return. I need a larger expected return in order to embrace risk. And it's that change in expected return, that change in demanded return, that if that goes up, the price goes down. So, so to some extent, uh, you know, uh, in terms of the real economy, yes, I think there's going to be disruptions. I think we're going to have a very high unemployment rate, you know, right off the top in, in the next uh, few weeks. I, I, I don't want to speculate too much on that. The, you know, the, the um, packages that are, that are being created are trying to mitigate that. And I've worked with some members of Congress in terms of trying to, you know, work on, work on how we, you know, how we try and mitigate the number of layoffs that occur. And that's part of what, you know, these small business loans are about. But, you know, we're, we're likely to see dislocations that, that don't come back. And that's, that, that's why the, the unemployment rate will have a long tail to it in terms of coming back down. Uh, so, so that kind of situation may add more risk aversion and it's the risk aversion. It's the repricing of all those cash flows, not just one or two years, but 50 years of them from a point where you had very high valuations and very low expected returns to where you even get normal expected returns, you know, historically run of the mill, that's what could give us uh, a really substantial further loss in the market. And I don't want people to rule that out. I don't want to scare them, but I do want to say, look, if you're, it, it, we're 20% we're off the high. And you, if you could not tolerate, if your future could not tolerate losing another half of your S&P investments, mm -hmm. Set it to the point where you could. I'm not saying sell. I've just set it to the point where you can live through whatever happens here, because I don't think we should be ruling out outcomes here, uh, you know, nor to the upside. You know, one of the things that I talk about, you know, to people is anytime you make a portfolio change, you're always going to regret something. You'll either, if it goes down, you'll regret you know, having sold anything, if it go, you'll regret not having sold more. If it goes up, you'll regret having, you know, sold anything. Something will always give you regret. Just try and balance those regrets. Well, you know, there's a lot of questions coming in about um, three things. Uh, one, the dollar and its likely path from here. And two, linked into that, its effects on the flations. You know, deflation now, is inflation a problem, as some people think? Do we get stagflation? What's your view on that? Yeah, so so the the path of the dollar is a relative thing, right? It depends on uh, how aggressive the U.S. is in creating government liabilities, and I don't say just money, because government liabilities are fun fungible. If you if you look at inflation, 
One of the things that you find, if you look at US data on inflation, and even if you look at hyperinflationary episodes, you'll typically see a few things. One is you'll see that the deficit, you know, the, the, the fiscal deficit is, is extremely large, you know, prior to inflations. And then you see typically some sort of supply shock that is associated with an amplification of, of, of currency creation, of, of the, the, the government borrowing money or, or the, the central bank creating money in order to kind of try and alleviate the situation. Look at 1923 in the Ruhr Valley in Germany, right? You know, when, when you had uh, that part of, you know, that part of Germany invaded over reparations and so forth, the German government responded, right, to striking workers by trying to pay them anyway. And the problem is that once you destabilize the psychological idea that this money is actually money good, that there's actually an ability of the government to make good on these liabilities that it's created, and make no mistake, if you look at a dollar bill out of your wallet, it says Federal Reserve note. It's a liability of the, Feder of the Federal Reserve. It's a liability just like bonds are of the Treasury. So when the government creates lots of liabilities, there is a psychological component that says, will other people take these liabilities for the same real goods and services tomorrow as I can get today? And if that psychological piece, and it's not something that you can run an econometric model on because it is so in people's heads, right? If that psychological piece gets lost and people no longer have confidence in their currency, you get this revulsion and they start not being willing to accept these dollars for the same trade-off in real goods. And that's what we call inflation. So my sense is that we are running a substantial risk if we do too much of this, you know, of this print stimulus, um, you know, uh, Federal Reserve action, especially Federal Reserve buying bonds that that you know that that may not be money good. Uh, we could get a, a tendency toward inflation. So. My view is, you know, we've got we've got some precious metal shares. I like precious metal shares relative to the metal. If you run the ratio of the stocks versus the metal, uh, but you know, but I think uh, I think those should be part of your portfolio. Uh, you know, we live on a farm, uh, which is you know part of our investment uh, in in terms of real something real other than paper. Uh, most of what. I have is, as, as you probably know, you know, invested alongside people who trust me in that role of my life. And I am not going to talk about it here because I, 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 I want to be able to share this widely. Uh, but, you know, basically what, um, what, uh, what we really should consider is that there may very well be some deterioration in the value of currency over time. People are used to the 2008-2009 episode where we just had, you know, clear deflationary, you know, worries about that. We didn't actually create as much money as we did do an asset swap between treasury bonds and monetary base. 
right? This one, we're doing both. We're creating a lot of new debt and we may be monetizing it. And that may have a different effect on inflation. So I, I actually think inflation hedges should be part of a portfolio. Yeah, okay, excellent. Now, another great question here. You, you do use 1929 a lot in your work as an analog, right? Which is the, the closest really to the current conditions that we have. Um, question here from someone talking about how both 21 and 29 were basically the, the, the result of policy mistakes. But this time, the Fed and the government have acted much, much faster. Do you think that that, that, that changes the picture? Do you think that that changes the way this plays out? Have they been so, quick enough? Yeah, so, so here's what's interesting about uh, 1929. I, uh, I actually, when I look at 1929, I look at the valuations yeah. that we saw at, you know, in September, uh, you know, August, September of 1929. I don't use it as an analog for the likely losses in this case, right? Because if you look at the, the decline that we had in the markets uh, you know, between 1929 and 1932, we, we essentially got, and you, you can um, you know, take a look at uh, the, the, the Dow on this, you know, we essentially got an 89% loss on the Dow Jones Industrial Average, we, an 89% loss. How do you get an 89% loss in the market? I'll tell you exactly how. You lose two thirds of your money and then you lose two thirds of what's left. And what's problematic for the market here is that we started in February about three times historical norms on uh, what I would consider to be the most reliable uh, it, it valuation measures uh, that, that we use. Um, I'll, I'll give you, uh, I'll share with you a little bit of a chart on, on that. Um, where is this little guy? Ah, here we go. Um, so if you look at, uh, the, the, this green line is basically uh, the, the um, gross value added of financial companies at scale, uh, of non-financial companies. Uh, including estimated foreign revenues. And that's actually the, the valuation measure that we find most uh, best correlated with, with subsequent returns. Um, one of the things you notice here is, is that when the market has come down under valuations and then you know, moves toward valuations, those lows that it has set tend to be rather durable, you know, uh, on the other hand, once the market moves above, those uh, those prices tend to be transient. You tend to, you know, go back down, retreat back to this green line before you really are going to get going again. Uh, you you haven't set a durable low. Uh, you've got something transient. Right now, we're about here. Um, so the idea that we've we've had enough of a sell-off is, I think you know, is, is premature. But the other thing that's interesting to note is that in the 1929-1932 decline, only about half of that decline, the first two thirds of loss that mar the market had was just a decline, you know, to run of the mill historical valuation norms. It was the policy errors that gave you the second two thirds decline and gave you a cumulative loss of you know uh, of 89 percent right so i am hopeful 
that we avoid any of those policy mistakes. But that doesn't mean that we ha that we can rule out the first loss of half or two thirds of the market's valuation. I know that sounds nuts, but back in um, 2000, basically on the same kind of premise, uh, you know, I, I noted that we expected, you know, the the Nasdaq to lose about 83% of its value over the completion of the cycle, and that's actually what the Nasdaq 100 lost. So, when you get very very high valuations, they're informative about your full cycle risks and your long term returns, but valuations aren't informative about what will happen over the next year or two. So, we're, you know, I'm not saying that. All of this has to happen now. We could get internals improving. People get speculative bit in their teeth. We get, you know, an extended bear market rally and whatnot, right? And maybe we don't see this. But this is, uh, but historical norms are substantially below where we are now. And we should not expect stocks to provide durably high long term returns from these valuations. So if we get a further advance, it's likely to be sort of part of a long, interesting trip to nowhere. Uh, you know, kind of like we saw, you know, between 2000 and, you know, 2011. We had 11 years there where, you know, you had good opportunities, you had bad opportunities, you had somewhere in between, big sell-offs, big advances, but net, you didn't go anywhere. Uh, and we've seen that several times across history. And it's usually associated with a market that starts at an extremely high level of valuation or ends at an extremely low valuation. And God forbid, both at the same time, that's when you get this sort of 1929, 1932 type declines. Well, you know, it's interesting what you said there about, about we should just not expect to make those returns. And it's that shift in expectations, which is really the whole ball game, right? Because if, if people just decide, which let's face it, over the last five or six, seven years, people have expected to make those returns. You, you yeah. can feel it in the air. And, yeah. and that change seems to be happening now, which, which you know, could bring us back towards that, that level that you talk about not being breached. Yeah, I, I think it's also part of the reason why people have this, this notion that a market that's 20% below the most extreme valuations in history and at prices that we saw in early 2019. 2019, that's last year, 2019, right? Yeah. Is a generational buying opportunity or something to get out your lists for and, and become fully invested and, and you know, rebalance all the way to, uh, you know, to, to a high stock allocation. Um, I'd give it time. I I don't want to I don't want to sound overconfident in terms of the return estimates because, like I say, you know, over the shorter term, you can get periods where you know people get the bit in their teeth and they take valuations away from their norms rather than toward their norms. But I think it would be uh, incorrect to think that stocks are reasonably valued here. I think on on any uh, measure that's actually very well correlated with what market returns, what subsequent market returns are, yeah. uh, we are still at, 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 at quite rich valuations on a historical basis. Well, I mean, there's a, there's a couple of other new factors this time around, and there's been a, a fair few questions. I'll try and wrap them all in, into a neat little package for you. The first one is passive, 
you know, how, how does the rise of algorithmic and passive trading affect this? And the second new variable we're having to deal with is negative interest rates. Yeah. How do both of those change the game, both for equity markets and for currencies and bonds? Yeah, so so passive is actually part of the reason, part of the way we got here, and and one of the it was also kind of the bane of my existence last year in 2019, because most of the headwind that we had was actually because of this sort of nifty fifty uh, behavior toward the largest cap stocks in the S and P. Um, the the idea of passive investment is basically price insensitive. You don't, you put blinders over your eyes and you say, no, I'm just going to own these stocks in proportion to their representation in the index. Uh, and, you know, one of the things that, that I, I've worked on in, in my doctoral dissertation uh, at Stanford was, was on efficiency and inefficiency of markets in the, in the presence of noise. And one of the things that comes out of that uh, is that, uh, an efficient market is 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 a whole lot like um, a sheep standing on a nickel. Right? If you've got a lot of, you know, sheepdogs running around, you know, constantly monitoring that sheepdog, it might very well stay on the nickel. But if the sheepdogs leave town, that sheep may end up nowhere near the nickel, right? And and so what's happening with passive investment is the sheepdogs are leaving town. And that's not a good thing for asset pricing, right? So that's, so that's the first thing. I, I, I actually think that as those deviations have opened up, you've gotten a situation that looks very much like what we saw in 2000. Uh, in 2000, uh, we had, uh, if you look at, for example, um, the broad market and the Russell 2000 and smaller value stocks, about half the market was actually reasonably or undervalued at the 2000 high because they had lagged the S&P so dramatically over the pre previous years. And so once you got things to revert, uh, value stocks and especially hedged value and especially value stocks hedged with the indexes uh, did enormously well. So. Uh, so we're we're in a similar situation here, uh, but I there there's enough um, tenacity that that you have to you have to be careful about how much you allow weights to get far away from index weights because because the basis risk uh, you know can eat you alive if you're if you're too far. But that's part of what's going on is, is that we're getting more mispricing in the market because of this passive attitude. Uh, and it's also contributed to the extreme overvaluation that we see in the S&P. Uh, with respect to negative interest rates, what's interesting about negative interest rates, I'm not sure that people realize how we get negative interest rates. You get negative interest rates with, by a central bank buying bonds, creating base money, basically bank reserves, and then going to the banks and saying, we're going to charge you interest for holding those reserves. That's how the ECB and the Bank of Japan have engineered, engineered. This, this, this is the genius that's going on within those walls. They've engineered negative interest rates to try and provoke some sort of speculation uh, by by the the poor bag holders 
somebody's got to own it, somebody's got to hold it, and everyone wants to get rid of it. And what it's done is it has created a massive increase in the amount of bad debt, of low-grade junky debt that somebody is able to issue because the guy on the other side is, is looking at this negative interest rate stuff and is, is saying, get me out, give me anything that will give me a yield. And so part of what central banks have done is a magnification of what they did during the mortgage bubble when, when basically, you know, they, they sat on interest rates at 1%, even, you know, in 2003, uh, they were doing this. And you got this enormous uh, in, uh, creation of, of debt because people were saying, well, I can't live on 1% T-bills. Where can I get something, a piece of paper that gives me more than 1% that, that, that may not go belly up? And they looked around and they saw mortgage bonds. So what did they do? They bought mortgage bonds. And Wall Street said, oh, hey, they're buying mortgage bonds. We got to create more product. And so they started lending to anyone with a pulse. And it gave us the mortgage bubble, which gave us the global financial crisis. And my fear is that central banks are really playing the same game and they haven't learned a damn thing. And it is going to be bad for all of us. But boy, in the process, everybody happy because, you know, negative interest rates. Hey, I can borrow at next to nothing and I can issue my paper to some poor sucker who's going to actually bear the credit risk. Well, so, so, so you know, what, what happens now? You talked about the, the, the junkiest of junk bonds, and there are, there's, there's so much now issuance just hanging on the edge of that precipice. Uh, you know, one more rung to go, and this thing falls over. Is that a clear and present danger? Is that something that they will have to find a way around by going to, you know, the ratings agencies and saying, okay, listen, fellas, or does the Fed have to step in and say, you know, we're going to buy junk bonds? So well, what's interesting is that, is that in, the, in countries that have a very strong social democratic or outright socialist government, those are, the, those are the central banks that will buy and that can buy uh, junky debt, equities, that sort of thing. They're, they're much more, you know, they're, they're much more um, involved in the behavior of their corporations. Uh, there, is, there, is, there are higher taxes. It's a much more social, you know, socially oriented uh, socialist um, type of governance or democratic socialist type of governance. We don't have that in the United States. We may get it. I don't think that's something Wall Street should be hoping for if that's what they're hoping for, unless, they're also willing to accept all of the other aspects of socialism. I'm, I'm, I'm a little, uh, I, I tend to be on the progressive side. So, so, you know, so some of this doesn't scare me in terms of the social aspects of it, but I think using public funds to bail out private losses, it, it makes me completely crazy, right? You know, because that's not, I think the function of, of a sound government or a sound central banking system. So in the United States, we have section 13 of the Federal Reserve Act that does not allow the, the, the central bank from buying uh, 
commercial paper, I'm sorry, from buying junky bonds other than doing what's called discounting, which is basically like, uh, you know, buying a, you know, buying a bill of, uh, of trade, you know, doing short-term financing for, for a security that's got less than 90 days of maturity, right? It doesn't have that, that mandate to buy junk bonds. On the other uh, side of things, uh, Section 14, which deals with open market operations, only allows the Federal Reserve to buy debt that is guaranteed by the U.S. government, right? Now, Bernanke actually violated Sections 13 and 14, and so they had to actually come back and rewrite those sections in Dodd-Frank like they were writing a children's book just to make it clear that creating off balance sheet shell companies like Maiden Lane is actually not legal. Uh, I can't say they won't do it again or try to do it again, uh, but it's very bad policy for the government to socialize, to, to allow you know private gains to be private gains, but when they turn into losses, have those those losses socialized. I don't think that's where we get to without a whole lot of other uh, you know, socialist features to the government that I don't think Wall Street would be happy with. So I don't think they should be hoping on it if they are. Um, but, uh, you know, but my, my view is that we will see some bankruptcies. Uh, and I think that's part of this process. And what we need to do is, is figure out how does the government play a role not in preventing stockholders from losing money or bondholders right. from losing money, but how do we help to ease the transition so that the bankruptcy process can lead to companies that are still operable and whole, kind of like what they did with GM during uh, the, the economic crisis in, you know, in 2008, 2009. So the government has a role to play in helping the restructuring along. I don't think they have uh, a sound role to play in bailing out private losses. Yeah, yeah I, was, I was desperately hoping that when you talked about how... Uh how bailing out and using public money to pay private losses makes you crazy. I thought you were going to slip into Christopher Walken there for a minute. I was desperately hoping that you would do that as him. Quarantine. It was fine for a few days. Binge watched Tiger King. He's crazy. But we've been cooped up so long. My wife, she thinks she's a chicken. I'd get her some help, but we need the eggs. <laughs> See, <laughs> now people, now people understand what I was sure. talking about. <laughs> that was good enough. Just one more question, because I've just seen yeah. the time. We, we've run over. One more question, because there's a few, been a few questions asking about the world outside the U.S. Any places that you you look that you see better valuations, or that you're looking to kind of keep an eye on for when they when they do correct to decent levels? Yeah, so it's interesting because um, if you look at international valuations, uh, even at the top, even you know at the beginning of the year, people were saying, "Well, you know, look, valuations are better, you know, in in a lot of the foreign markets than they are in the U.S. Doesn't that make them attractive here?" And my response has always been, "If you look at." periods where the U.S. market loses value. One of the things that you will find is that international stocks during those periods have a beta of one or more than one. 
meaning that international diversification helps you least at the moment you need it most. Uh, so, so I do think that there are, there are lots of international valuations that are, are um, you know, more attractive, uh, you know, some of the EM valuations, but, you know, I mean, there, there's going to be a lot of, uh, you know, disruption between now and then uh, when, when we get to the point where you would want to accept beta, right, uh, or accept a lot of it. At that point, right, at the point where we get through a bear market, and I, I think we've got a ways to go, to be honest with you, but at the point where we get into the next bull market, I think those international valuations will allow those stocks and those markets to shine. And I would, I would even go just broadly MXEA, you know, broadly the, you know, the EFA index and, and, you know, some of the EMs, you could, you don't have to be terribly selective about it. But I don't think that's, a strategy for a bear market or a downturn or something that's going to really mitigate your risk in a decline because betas just, they just all go to one during, uh, during periods where, where the US uh, loses value. So international stocks have their place. Uh, I don't think they're gonna be a, you know, a, a, a means of mitigation uh, during this, I, I think you know to some extent you know bonds are, but you know I, if you're expecting some inflation, you kind of want to keep your durations relatively low. Uh, precious metals, you know that you know my my sort of uh, you know investment uh, approach you know focuses on hedged equity, uh, where where you know there there may be some differences in in terms of what's available in the broad market versus you know, what we might use to hedge. Uh, but that's, you know, I, I think keeping your beta relatively low uh, here and, and really, you know, having some diversification that allows, um, you know, for real assets as well as hedged equity, as well as, you know, if you want to own the S&P, that's fine. Just know how much you can tolerate. Uh, you know, that's kind of the way that you can think about structuring a portfolio. Jonathan, we've, we've, again, we've run over time. I can't believe the hours just disappeared on us. I, I, I cannot thank you enough for doing this. I mean, no, it's, it's just it's, it's it's so fun. great to have, have an hour of your time. I have been looking so much, so forward to talking with you. It's, it's, it's always a joy, man. Well, thank you. We're, we're going to do it in person next time and have a bottle of wine on the deck and sit and talk about all that crazy stuff that happened way back then. We didn't even really get to the COVID stuff, but we'll have to do that again another time. Yeah. But John, look, thank you for all you do. Thank you for all the incredible uh, thought that you share with the world. I mean, it's 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 fantastic. And you know, people can take away from it what they want, but the depth of your analysis is second to none. And I applaud you and I appreciate it for, for decades now. So thank you on a personal note for that. Thanks, Grant. And, and uh, best to you and yours. All right, take care. All right, and thanks everyone for uh, coming and you know sharing our world with us. There you go.